three weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and talked about how to handle disputes or legal agreements when the dispute is between two Christians in the same church. There are always questions after a message like that. How do we apply that? What do we do with that? The first step, of course, is to try to resolve the issues within the Christian community. The recommendation is to find a way to work it out without going to court. But just to clarify, sometimes Christians have to go to court to resolve a business problem or to defend oneself in a lawsuit or uh, file a lawsuit to recover damages or cover medical costs due to an accident. A lot of different reasons. Maybe going to court in the case of a divorce or child custody case, filing a restraining order to obtain legal protection. See, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world overlap in many, many places. So we have to work within the context of our nation's communities and our community's laws. But if the issue is between two believers, if possible, it's better to resolve the dispute or try to resolve the dispute within the church community. That's the basic outline. So if you missed that Sunday, you don't have to go online to listen to the message. There it is. Okay. Today we move on to the next three verses of 1 Corinthians 6. Three very important verses. And in them, Paul is going to tell us who is going to inherit the kingdom of God and who will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want us to look at who's in, who's out. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it's page 926 in the Bible in front of you, in the rack in front of you, if you want to follow. It'll also be on the projection in front of you. 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, if we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and who inherits, inherits it and who doesn't, we need to define, first of all, what the kingdom of God is. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's the place where God is in charge. Uh, when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? Because they, everybody said he claimed to be a king. And he said, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. He said, this kingdom is not of this world. We see the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the physical realm, but the kingdom of, of God is essentially spiritual in nature that will someday encompass all dimensions of reality, both spiritual and physical. We see the kingdom of God in the physical realm with conversion, the converted people. We see it in the church. We see it in works of righteousness and Christians taking care of the poor and needy. So there are manifestations of the kingdom of God that we see around us. And first of all, we see the kingdom of God manifested in uh, letter A, institutions. We see it in, in churches, schools, relief organizations, mission organizations, orphanages, and hospitals. The kingdom of God. It's the kingdom works. God's work performed through institutions, through, through uh, institutions or physical uh, and, and uh, manifestations on, on earth. We also see the kingdom of God working through individuals. Lives that have been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, carrying out God's work. 
These individuals live out God's character. Uh, some would call uh, in Galatians the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control. And we see God working through individuals and groups of individuals. Also, we see his power working in miracles, signs, and wonders. In the book of Acts, especially, we read at the beginning of the kingdom of God where Jesus was Lord and how his power was released through individuals and they did signs and wonders. That was the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of the enemy and Satan. The kingdom of God also has a dimension of something that's called already and not yet. This is where it gets a little confusing. Already and not yet. Already is that we experience some of God's blessings, his rule on earth. A little bit of heaven on earth. We experience God's presence and his power and a lot of things. But we haven't experienced the full culmination of that. There's much more in the future that's not realized. The not yet is the culmination of the rule of Jesus, the Lordship, when Jesus comes back in the second coming, when he will rule and reign completely, complete dominion over everything. Now, he's sovereign now, but obviously there are things that he's allowing human beings to control. That's why it's such a mess, but that's, that's something else. The kingdom of God also denotes present position and future destiny. By present position, we talk about whether we're for Jesus or against him. Present position. In 1 John, 5, 1, through, uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So those who are living in the present kingdom realm, in the light, in the present, there's also the present, there's future destiny, which has to do with destination. The kingdom of God has to do with heaven or eternal life. Who goes to heaven? What is heaven like? Who decides who goes to heaven? We talk about heaven every once in a while. There were two elderly men who were baseball fanatics, and uh, they debated and dreamed endlessly about whether there was going to be baseball in heaven. And one died and went to heaven. And he communicated to his friend left on earth through a dream, and he said, I've got some good news and some bad news. He said, the good news is there's baseball in heaven. He said, the bad news is you're scheduled to pitch this Thursday. Well, the Bible tells us we all have a destination. We've talked about this earlier in 1 Corinthians. There are only two destinations. There's heaven, there's hell. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. There's, there's, there are two places of destiny. And the desire is that we all find the destiny, destination of heaven. Okay, my iPad acted up here. Okay. This happens, Damien, you gotta help me. Okay, here we go. Number two, Roman numeral number two, the kingdom of God. This is who's out, who's out. Now before we examine the specific, specific list that Paul gives, um, and by the way, when we look at lists in the Bible, usually they're, they're, they're not exhaustive, they're usually illustrative, which is the case here. But we'll look at the list in a little bit. But before we look at that, I wanna look at two very, very important concepts about this kingdom of God. The first one, letter A, is inheritance. Inheritance. It says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God in verse nine. We don't earn an inheritance. We receive an inheritance usually because we're related. We're, we're family, okay? Your distant uncle passes away and you inherit his farm complete with 500 cats, okay? You didn't earn that farm. 
It came to you by virtue of relationship. And if we're to receive an inheritance, usually it's because we're related. We do not receive this inheritance since the kingdom of God because we're better than everyone else. It's not because we've done fewer bad things. We receive this inheritance by virtue of believing and receiving God's gift of Jesus. Therefore, we become a child of God. Then we're related. Jesus talked about it in John 3 about being born again, becoming a child of God. In John 1, 10 to 13, it says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In other words, becoming children of God, born of God. That is what gives us this inheritance of the kingdom of God. We don't earn that right. If we earned our inheritance, we'd be working, fighting, striving to get it. But we enter into our inheritance by virtue of our relationship with God made possible by Jesus Christ. Not hard work. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of work, so that no one can boast. So inheritance, very, very important that we talk, when we're talking about inheriting the kingdom of God. It's not earned. Then before we look at Paul's description of who will not inherit the kingdom of God, I want to look at one other key concept. So that key concept is something called sin orientation. Sin orientation. Now there are laws, state laws and national laws that outlaw discrimination based on race, sex, religion, nation of, or, nation of origin, etc. And most states have added sexual orientation. And I want to I clarify some mushy thinking. We've been really, really brainwashed. Really brainwashed when it comes to this whole issue of, of sexual orientation. Why do we take one sin, just one sin, homosexuality, and say it's fine, it's normal and right, because I'm oriented towards homosexuality. Why do we just say that one is okay? We as human beings, I do not believe, have a such a thing as sexual orientation. We are male and we're female. That's it. We're male and female. God created us with the normal impulses that are normal and healthy and right. But it's not this sexual orientation. There's no such thing as sexual orientation. It's a lie. But we do have a sin orientation. We do have a sin orientation. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. We all have a problem. All of us have a problem. It's called sin. It's called sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can call it a, a genetic predisposition, a nature problem. We all have a sin orientation. We are all, by nature, sinners. It's part of who we are. That's why Jesus had to come and redeem us to get us out of that, to change us. We all have a sin nature that moves us to habitually sin. Now, when you look at that, you say, what are the particular sins we're talking about? Because some of us have particular sins that are more of a temptation for us than others. Some may have a sin orientation towards pride or arrogance or a sin orientation towards judgmentalism. Or some have the sin orientation to stealing or lying or cheating or gossip. That's, there's one thing that, that they do, it's always that. 
Or some have a sin orientation to adultery or pornography or, or, or sexual perversion. There are some that kill people. There are some that molest children. And some have a sin orientation towards homosexuality. Okay, that's an orientation. They have a sin orientation toward that particular sin. And like the young woman who is sharing with her pastor that she had a same-sex attraction, he affirmed her same-sex attraction and said, it's great that you can finally be who you are. Say, yes, be who you are, a sinner who desperately needs to be changed. A sinner with a sin problem, no matter what that sin problem is, no matter what the sin orientation is. We all have a sin problem. Kind of levels the playing field a little bit. But just because we have an orientation towards a particular sin does not make it right. We cannot justify any sin just because we have an orientation toward that particular sin. We can't just separate out this sin and that sin and say, I have an orientation for that, it's okay. The child molester will say I'm attracted to children. Does that make it okay? No. The adulterer says he's attracted to other men's wives. Does that make it right? No. The, the, the homosexual will say I have a same-sex attraction to other men or other women. Does that make it right? No. Is right and wrong based on how we feel or justifying my sin orientation? No. The kleptomaniac says he has a tendency to take other people's property and shoplift. Is that right? No, it's not. Why are all these things wrong? Why are they wrong? Because God says they're wrong. It's his word, it's the Bible. See, the human mind has the infinite capacity to rationalize sin, any sin. Since the heart is desperately wicked above all things, who can know it? We can rationalize any sin and we can create justification for any action. Why are these things wrong? Because God says it's wrong. Sexual orientation, same-sex attraction is just one of those sins. It's the main and the latest one to be justified and legalized and practiced and promoted and proud of. Pride. Pride. Pride parades. That is why it's critical to have an objective standard of truth, right and wrong. The Bible, God's word. Now, many people talk about choice. I will choose what to do with my body. You know, that's, that was the key word in campaigns and all kinds of things. I will choose what to do with my body. Yet when it comes to certain sins, especially homosexuality, they have no choice. They were made this way. That's a lie. We, were, we always have a choice. No matter what the sin orientation, no matter what we're pulled into, we have a choice to say yes or no. It's a, that is the choice. That's the choice. Do we follow our sinful impulses or give into our sinful orientation or not? Now, some people would say, this is hate speech. Let me tell you something. We don't, we don't hate people. We hate sin. God does not hate people. God loves people. He loved them so much, he sent Jesus to restore a relationship. Sent his only son to die. Said he, he so loved the world, he gave his only son. Says he did not send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world. God does not hate people. He hates sin. Why does God hate sin? Because it's so incredibly destructive and destroys, breaks lives. It destroys lives. And God says, I hate sin. And we ought to also hate sin. Why is it so destructive? Because 
if it's undealt with, it keeps people from inheriting the kingdom of God. And God wants everybody in the kingdom. Now, the good news. God does not discriminate. God does not discriminate on the basis of our sin orientation. He doesn't. He doesn't discriminate against anyone for their sin orientation. Because all of us, we all deserve hell and judgment. Okay? Call it like it is. The Bible says we all deserve that. God does not discriminate against our sin orientation. He will forgive. He will also forgive all who confess and repent. God will not discriminate against you for your sin orientation. He will forgive and deliver you from any sin if you are truly sorry and forsake the sin. He doesn't, he doesn't put certain sins up as worse than others. He forgives all sin. I know some people carry certain things around with them their entire life and they say, I can't get over it. God will never forgive me. God will forgive you. But he says the wicked, those who practice this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't make it in. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul denounces all forms of evil as incompatible with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is spiritual. It's a relationship with God. Therefore, it must be consistent with God's character, his nature. If we're going to be in a relationship with God, we must be in consistent relationship, consistency with his nature and his character. Otherwise, we're alienated. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned to fall short. Stress is on character. Then Paul makes a list of these evil practices and he tells us who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God or who is not righteous. People who practice a lifestyle listed, and again, this is not exhaustive. He starts with number one, sexual immorality. This is any sex sin, sex outside of marriage, before marriage, during marriage, whatever it is. And it includes our thought life, according to Jesus, which means it includes pornography. Some people say, well, we're just looking at a bunch of X's and O's and, and a bunch of, of computer images. No, no. Pornography involves the thought, and so that's sexual immorality as well. Number two, idolaters. Now, idols didn't begin by being a god. It began by becoming a symbol of a god. Its function was to help people approach their god, but it ended up, they, they began to worship the idol instead. And for us, idolatry is worshiping anything, making anything more important than God himself. And if there's anything more important than God in your life, that's idolatry. It's idolatry. That's a hard one, you know, because you say, what's, what's more important? I can't see God. It's hard to do this. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Idolatry. Our affections. Our, it can be a person, a possession. It can be anything. Number three, adulterers, and this refers to married persons having sexual relations outside of any kind outside of marriage, outside of marriage. Number four, male prostitutes. In some versions, if you have it, it might read effeminate, effeminate. This comes from the Greek word soft, which referred to the younger passive partner in a homosexual relationship. It's called pederasty or sodomy, particularly, particularly between a man and a boy. Now, I don't know if you've been in touch with what's going on out there. This has been going for probably at least 20 years. Organization called the North American Man-Boy Love Association. North American Man-Boy Love Association. Their, their motto is sex before eight or it's too late. 
they, they are basically child predators. They prey on young boys, and they've been going forever. They are in positions of high authority in government places all over this country. And as we can see in the entertainment industry, all over the place, NAMBLA, if you ever see it, N-A-M-B-L-A. It was very common in Corinth, and it's very common today. Very common today. There were young men who sold themselves as mistresses for sexual pleasure of men older. And we have sexual predators, a lot of sexual predators out there. Not only men, but we also have women. We read about it, whether they're people in authority or coaches or teachers or pastors or people in authority, different places, police officers. There are all kinds of people that, that, that hide themselves as sexual predators. They're out, they're not in. Who's out? Number five, homosexual offenders. These are those who practice same-sex relationships. I know the debate rages today about homosexuality. Years ago, we chose to sin, we chose to become a homosexual. Today, it's considered genetic, it's inborn, it's environmental. You can choose your gender from any list of up upwards of 70 different genders. It's just, it's absurd. And, and you really don't have a choice. You're, you're, you're this way. Now, this started a long time ago, and it's interesting, and this, uh, a man named, a writer named John Leo wrote for US News and World Report back in the 90s, wrote an article called The Psychologizing of Crime. Psychologizing of Crime. And this article was about a chief judge of New York State's highest court. His name was Sol Wachtler. And he was arrested for extortion and threatening to kidnap the 14-year-old daughter of his ex-lover. He was extortion and kidnapping of doing that. And most people in New York thought that he had committed a crime. But this guy got a, a psychologist, his name was John Money, John Money, a prominent sexologist, a medical psychologist. He wrote that Walkler, Judge Walkler, was manifesting advanced symptoms of Clarembault Kandinsky syndrome, CKS, a devastating illness. In plain English, he would suggest we would call it irresistibly lovesick suffering under the spell of erotomania. And he, the psychologist, money, wrote, the law and order treatment of people with CKS is the equivalent of making it a crime to have epileptic spells. Seriously? In other words, if you're suffering under lovesickness, it's like you had an epileptic. They, they made it into some kind of a medical thing. And we would think that lovesick people are responsible for what they do, but he says they're helpless pawns of a disease. In this case, and I quote him, erotomanic type delusional disorder. And that's a diagnostic code of 297.10 of the American Psychiatric Association. It wasn't my fault. John Leo calls this nonsense the psychologized vocabulary of moral evasion. The psychologized vocabulary of moral evasion. The vocabulary of moral evasion is around us all over the place today. Everywhere. Everything from the devil made me to do it to I made this way or whatever. And if, if, no matter what our background, if we have an orientation towards some sin or not, it doesn't mean that we're free to do that sin. Moral evasion. I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to, and this is probably the best picture of the journey of degradation that most people, it's, it's Romans 1, 
And, and I want to read through this because it cuts through this moral evasion vocabulary. Romans 1, starting with verse 18, it's all up on the screen. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. We can see from nature all the things about God. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in a sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, third time he said that, to a depraved mind so that they do, not, they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Huge, huge passage. Romans 1 talks about where they started and how they got there. It's very clear what God means. Homosexuality is a sin and it's a choice. Number six, who's out? Thieves, thieves. This word refers to sneak thieves or petty pilferers. Say, I'm not a burglar. Okay, I'm good. Um, do you steal time? or money from your boss? Do you work a full day for a full day's wages? The implication is it's sneaking or pilfering. Who's out? Number seven, greed, greedy or covetous. Desiring what someone else has to the point of wanting it ourselves. I have a whole sermon on that on the 10th commandment series that we have, God's Top 10. Am I totally satisfied with what I possess? That's a question. Number eight, who's out? Drunkards. There, there are many social alcoholics who believe they are in the kingdom, but drunkenness is a sin. We practice drunkenness. Now, I'm not going to be the one that, that decides, you know, I mean, the state says it's 0.08 or 0.1, whatever it is. Um, but the question, it's, it's probably uh, hard to know exactly. But pr uh, practicing, practicing drinking to get drunk. When does a drinker become a drunkard? That's God's evaluation, not ours. We get to 1 Corinthians 8, by the way. Uh, we'll look at that gray area again in more detail. But drunkards. Who's out? Number nine, slanderers or revilers. Ten, swindlers. Swindlers. Now, before you breathe a big sigh of relief and say, Phew, I'm not on the list, remember again that this is not exhaustive. It's just illustrative. Anything that does not express the character of God is a sin. Anything. And if we persist in living a lifestyle of that sin, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul said to the people, do not be 
deceived. Do not be deceived. Now, Gordon Fee writes this because some people say, well, you know, I don't know if you can be disinherited. And uh, basically, that theology fails to take seriously the genuine, according to Gordon Fee. The tension of a text like this, the warning is real, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. First of all, that applies to the unsaved, those that have never known Jesus. Paul's concern, however, is that the Corinthians must stop deceiving themselves or allowing themselves to be deceived. And by persisting in the same behavior as those who are already destined for judgment, they're placing themselves in the very danger of the same judgment. If it were not so, Gordon says, the warning is no warning at all. So this is a warning. Now, before you think you're off the hook, and we don't have time to read Galatians 5, 19, but Ephesians 5, 3 through 5 says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. God's character, God's holiness, is not to be trifled with. We take it so lightly when we sing a song that talks about the holiness of God that we can even stand in his presence or be in his presence is an amazing thing. God is so holy and righteous and he wants us to be holy. Who then can be saved? Now, remember, Paul is writing first, this, this book of 1 Corinthians is written to believers. It's written to church people, good church people, good church members, the saints. And he says, don't be deceived. If you practice these evils, you will end up in a Christless eternity. Then Paul makes a statement in verse 11. And I, this is kind of the turning point of the whole passage. I love this in verse 11. He says, and that is what some of you were. He gives this list of all these horrible sins and all these horrible lifestyles. And he said, these people won't, but he says, then he says these nice church people, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. This, this does a couple things. Number one, it saves us from pride and self-righteousness. Pride and saying, oh, we're great. You know, no, it saves us from pride and self-righteousness. It also gives us hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life. Many in the church at Corinth and many in the church today, even here today, this is where we used to be. He says, this is where you were. But, he says, says this, is, this is where some of you were. This is what some of you were. But, now we can look at the kingdom of God. Who's in? Who's in? But you were first, you were washed. You were washed. Paul reminds them and us that it's possible, of what is possible. God takes the, the scars and the wrecked humanity, the brokenness that we bring to him. All the stuff that we were, we bring it to him and he washes us, he cleans us up. Now it might have been a long time since that's happened for you, but don't forget, don't forget where we were, where, where we came from and understanding how far and how distant we are from God. God takes the scarred, broken wrecks of humanity and, and, and given to him by faith and cleans us up. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. 
It's an incredible washing that, that, that takes place, completely clean. Now, since we've come to Wisconsin, we've seen a lot of snow. Last three years, a lot of snow. Um, and I mean, we kind of knew that was going to happen. But the, the thing that's amazing is when the snow comes down and it, it has that, that brilliant, when it's a dry snow, it just brilliance, it just sparkles in the sun when it's done. And it's just incredibly white, covers all that stuff. And in Isaiah, it says that he has washed us with the blood and we are whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. It's not just the color of snow. Whiter than snow. That's what he does. He says, I have washed you. I've cleaned you. You're pure and holy as if you've never sinned. I've removed all of your guilt. That is what some of you were. You were out, but you were washed. And then you were sanctified, let her be. This has to do with a perfecting process. And it is a process. It's moral, ethical growth towards perfection. We talked earlier about how God has set his his spirit in us and has reserved us for his purposes. You are reserved of God. God has a purpose for each one of us. He washes us and then he sanctifies us and makes us whole and, and perfects us slowly over time. Now it's not an instantaneous thing, it takes time, but he makes us useful again. And then letter C, he says you're justified. And this means to be declared righteous in God's sight. It's a, it's a legal term. It's like, it's like you are on trial at a, in a courtroom and the jury comes out. You've been through this whole trial process and the foreman hands the verdict for the judge to read. The judge hands it back and everybody holds their breath. And then the jury foreman says, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. At that moment, that defendant is free to go. They're not guilty. They're justified. Justified. We don't use the word justify very. Yeah, justify was the name of the, the horse that uh, won the Triple Crown. Uh, that's irrelevant. But justified. Justified means uh, be, needs to be declared not guilty. And the interesting thing about the word justify, and let me just take a minute for it. If you like grammar, both of you. Um, grammar is not something we like, but in the Greek, this is, the word justified is in the aorist tense, which means it's, it's, it's a past tense, something, and it happened at a point in time. So it says you, when he says you were justified, it happened at a point in history. When we gave our life to Jesus, confessed our sins, we were at that point in time, we were declared not guilty, we were declared righteous. But not only does that happen, it has present and ongoing results present and ongoing. So when it's in the aorist tense, it means it happened in the past. It's not just a past tense. It has the past tense point in time, and it has present and ongoing results, which means continually being justified. Ongoing. Ongoing. Romans 5.9 says, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It's a beautiful picture of our justification when Jesus died and we accepted that gift. Justified, called back into right relationship with God. It has present and ongoing consequences. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What an incredible picture of God's grace, unmerited favor. It's the proof 
that God can take the dregs of humanity, God can take the brokenness, the places where we've been, the places where other people are, and he can create brand new life. And this all happens in the name of the Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus makes all things new. New life, eternal life, the kingdom of God is not something we earn, it's not something we obtain by our own right or by our own power. This new life, this eternal life, entry into the kingdom of God is given by faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It's all God's work. And you can have this life today. And if you're here this morning, if you're not sure you're in or out, have eternal life or do not have eternal life, this was written in order that you might know, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. We can't earn it. It's an inheritance by virtue of entry into relationship, a sonship with God through Jesus Christ. All have sinned, all have fallen short. Such were some of you, but you can be washed, sanctified, and justified. Are you in? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us strong words through Paul. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to work in all of our lives and that nobody would leave today not knowing for sure. And I just pray that you'll open up our hearts and lives today. If we can just keep our heads bowed for a moment. There are probably three groups of people here this morning. First, there may be those who are out and know it, and they want to enter into the kingdom of God for the first time. Secondly, there are those who are in but need a new awareness of God's incredible forgiveness for your past and his desire to perfect you, to become more like Jesus. And there may be those of you, number three, who are just not sure. I want to make sure that everybody has a chance that wants to, to be sure. If you could look up here for a moment, look at the screen, there's a prayer. that You can pray, I'll pray it aloud, you can pray it silently. It says, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place for my sins. I believe in you and I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Forgive my sins. Give me your gift of eternal life. Take control of the center of my life and make me who you want me to be. If you prayed that prayer today and meant it, you are now in. You are now in. And I'd encourage you, when the service is over, if, the, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, on the Connect card, there's a little box in the upper right-hand corner. Put an X in there and put it in the in the offering box as you leave. There's also a place at the bottom of the inside flap that says, what's next? There, You can go online and download a book that talks about what happened. But if you need more information, please feel free to go ecwesleyan.net backslash next is where you go on that. Some more information. Let's stand, shall we?
I just want to declare to you, God loves you so much. And if you have a prayer need, something you want to pray for, um, Becky and I'll ask if Alicia will also go over here and pray. If you have a prayer need, don't leave carrying a burden with you. And uh, believe that God's love for us is unconditional, and he reaches out for that. Let's be dismissed with the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Mm -hmm.